I've tried to be clear. I'm not doing this to shame people or make them feel embarrassed or dig up dirty laundry. I'm using it to show the commonality of this process. Welcome to Midlife Mixtape, the podcast. I'm Nancy Davis Coe, and we're here to talk about the years between being hip and breaking one. Where do I belong? Tell me why I'm here and what's taking this long. When can I move on? Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com forward slash midlife mixtape. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Again, that's audibletrial.com forward slash midlife mixtape for your free audiobook. Hey there, everyone. I'm recording this after a week of being on the East Coast visiting my 84-year-old mom, so wave your hands in the air like you just don't care if you too are squashed in the sandwich generation. I had a 17-year-old here at home with a fresh new driver's license, and she was home alone for a couple of days because my husband was on business travel, and on the other side of the country, I was with my octogenarian mom, whose TV went out on my second day there. I mean, just deprive my mother of her oxygen while you're at it. Anyway, mom likes to have some noise in the background all the time, so with the TV out of service, I just kept loading up CDs for her. I didn't know what else to do. So she has a ton of John Denver, that's her favorite, but it makes her sob because dementia is brutal. And please, who doesn't sob at the line, I know he'd be a poor man if he never saw an eagle fly, he would be poor. It's so sad. So I switched John Denver up with some Marty Robbins and Patsy Cline. And then I finally got to the other big name in the CD collection, Susan Boyle. You remember Susan Boyle. She's that rather unremarkable looking lady on Britain's Got Talent who has the voice of an angel, which is why, you guys, I know that Susan Boyle does a cover of Crowded House's Don't Dream It's Over. I mean, I will do anything for my mom when I'm there, from refilling her coffee to plugging in her heating pad to cleaning out her fridge. But when you ask me to listen to Susan Boyle covering a Neil Finn song as light opera, I have to take a knee. Okay, that's my rant. I also got to hang out with a couple of 30-something nephews, so I'm all caught up with my family tree on the East Coast just in time for today's guest. Jennifer Mendelson is a seasoned journalist and ghostwriter, a former People magazine special correspondent and Slate columnist. Her work has appeared in numerous local and national publications, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, the LA Times, and USA Today. Based in Baltimore, Jennifer is also passionately engaged in the genealogy world and serves on the board of the Jewish Genealogy Society of Maryland. She is the founder of Resistance Genealogy, a project that uses the historical record to fight disinformation. So let's get to the root of things with Jennifer. So I'm here today with Jennifer Mendelson. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Lots to talk about with your work with Resistance Genealogy, but let's start with the really important question, which is what was the first concert you ever saw and what were the circumstances? I can't believe that's where you're going to start. That's always where I start, Jennifer. I I am a discredit to our entire generation (laughs) because... I can't remember what my first concert was. People have asked me this so many times, and I don't know why I don't have like a strong association with which concert was my first concert. That said, 
I'm going to go out on a limb. I think it was Madonna's Like a Virgin at Madison Square Garden in 1985. And the fact that it was that hopefully makes up for the fact that I can't remember if that was first because that was so iconically Gen X-y. Well, the fact that you can't remember it is just proof that you are a Gen X because, you know, we're all losing your memory now. And I was going to say, you could just make up the best concert of that decade and claim it because who's going to say you're wrong? So. Well, I really was there. I didn't make yeah. that part. Of it. We had like total nosebleed seats, my best friend and I, and I wore the shirt to school the next day because you had to. Yeah. And yeah. Have you seen her on any of her more recent tours? I have. I went as a pregnant 30 something <laughs> and screamed my head off and jumped up and down. And yeah, her production's pretty astonishing. It's I mean, I give her a lot of credit. She still brings it. Oh, oh my God. She's the best. Yeah. Uh, and also, I saw a little nugget on your Twitter feed, and you guys should be following Jennifer on Twitter. It's she is clever title TK, uh, and I'll put a, a link to that in the show notes. But I did see a little nugget the other day, and you said, "True story. I was in the chorus of a summer camp fiddler production with Mariah Carey as Huddle." Uh, you'll need to talk about that to us, please. Oh my God, this is such a great story. Okay, here's the story. When I was, it was the summer of 1980, I believe. And I used to go to this performing arts summer camp on Long Island called Usedan. Anybody who grew up on Long Island knows Usedan. It's sort of famous. And I was a cellist back in the day. That was my thing. But you had to have a major and a minor. And my minor was chorus. So I was in the chorus of this production of Fiddler on the Roof. Now, fast forward to, I don't know, nine or 10 years ago when I got on Facebook and I did what everybody our age does when you get on Facebook. You start looking up anyone and everything that you were ever a part of, (laughs) you know, your summer camps, your, well, for me, my old orchestra, you know, I looked up everybody. And of course, there was a Facebook page for people who went to USDAN in the 80s. And people were posting reminiscences from USDAN in the 80s. So I sat down and I tossed off a little note. And I said, I did this, this was my cello teacher. And I remembered, I was in a production of Fiddler on the Roof. And the girl who had Huddle, who played Huddle, had the most amazing voice (laughs) I'd ever heard. I remember that 37 years later because I we all were just like, oh my God, have you heard that girl sing? She's amazing. And somebody replied, there's a reason that you remember that girl who played Huddle. Her name was Mariah Carey. And I went, no, like, no. And then I Googled and it's on Newsdance. Uh, website, you know, proud alumnus, Mariah Carey. And of course, when I think back in my head, it was totally Mariah Carey. (laughs) I remember exactly what she looked like. And, and I'm telling you, my friends and I all stood up. She was 12 years old, maybe. Mm -hmm. And we all stood around talking about, oh my God, that girl has the most beautiful singing voice any of us had ever heard. Wow. Yeah. yeah, I would. I wonder if it would almost be disheartening to be in the in the youth choir behind Mariah Carey, like, okay, I'm going back to my cello. This isn't happening for me. (laughs) Yeah, the singing career never took off for me quite like it did for Mariah. Well, the career that has taken off for you and what brought you to my attention is something that none of us ever knew would be necessary. It's resistance genealogy. So you're doing some of the most innovative and compelling resistance work out there right now using your research skills as a journalist and your genealogy skills 
to expose the hypocrisy of the current administration's anti-immigration stance. And I wondered if we could start by having you describe what that work is and maybe give some examples of what you've found. Sure. Well, resistance genealogy is sort of the hashtaggy name that I have come up with for the work that I have been doing. But I have been involved very passionately in genealogical research for the last five years. And I always thought that it was sort of a little historical pocket that I retreated into. But in the last couple of years, I have realized that there was actually great resonance in the work that I was doing. And it was not so much a retreat, but it actually could really inform what's going on in the current world politically. All these issues of immigration suddenly became very, very relevant. And the way this all evolved was I would hear people, whether they were pundits or politicians, talking so negatively about immigrants. And I just would sort of wonder, like, huh, I know that every single person that I have ever sat down to research their family tree, their story leads back to an immigrant somewhere. It's just a question of whether it's relatively recent or relatively far away. So I thought, well, I wonder what these people's stories are. There's no reason why I can't sort of do the same thing for them that I do for myself or for any anyone whose tree I start to do. So I just started doing that. You know, Steve King, the congressman from Iowa, was out there saying, uh, speaking very negatively about immigrants and saying, we can't restore our civilization with other people's babies or someone else's babies. And I just thought, well, his people were probably someone else's babies <laughs> at some point. So I worked up his tree. And sure enough, his grandmother was an immigrant and came as a little girl on a boat from Germany. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, how can he stand in judgment of immigrants when he himself is descended from immigrants? And it just sort of went from there. And I've been putting it out on Twitter. I've written about it for Wonkat and Politico. And I've been really, really, really taken aback by how it has caught fire. And I was fascinated by the Tommy Laren story that you found. She talked about people cutting corners coming to, to the States. And uh, you found her grandfather who had done the same thing. I did her tree just because I knew with a last name like Lauren, which sounds ethnic, um, I had a feeling that it probably wasn't that far back in her tree that we would find an immigrant. And I did it just out of curiosity. But what ended up happening that was kind of hilarious was, I, you know, it was very easy to sort of get a bead on who her grandparents were and go from there. But when I got to her great-great-grandfather, whose name was Constantine Dietrich, um, his name popped up in a file on Ancestry.com or in a database that means that there's some sort of record about his immigration in a certain archive in Kansas City. And it doesn't necessarily mean anything bad or sinister. I've certainly had people pop up in there before, but it typically means that there's some sort of irregularity with their naturalization. And I just kind of went, huh, I wonder what that is. And I opened it up and my jaw fell on the floor because here is a woman who rants and raves about illegal immigrants. And what it said was prosecuted for forging his immigration papers. And I just thought, no. 
And it was. I, I ended up ordering the indictment from the National Archives, and he was actually indicted by a federal grand jury for forging his naturalization petition. And um, I've always been very clear when I've talked about this publicly. He was acquitted at trial, so it you know he was not deported or anything like that. But I have the entire indictment, and there's a lot of really damning evidence in there. And I've used it to show. I've I've tried to be clear. I'm not doing this to shame people or make them feel embarrassed or dig up dirty laundry. I'm using it to show the commonality of this process. And people throughout history have so wanted to be Americans that they sometimes cut corners and did things that were not completely above board. And I'm I'm trying to show people that when they speak and speak badly and look down on immigrants today, that probably it's very likely that somewhere in their own story is somebody who did exactly the same thing. And that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to show the commonality. And do here. you ever hear back from the people whose family trees you share in this regard? No. I have not. I've had many people, though, what's what's hilarious is this has gotten more and more popular. I've had so many people tweet me saying, if I say bad things about immigrants, will you please do my tree for me? <laughs> well, I was going to say one of the things that I think is so fascinating about this is that it's become a bit of a community effort. And I see people offering on Twitter to give you a divorce record or birth records or their own roughed out genealogy family trees for people you're researching. And I, re- I thought, well, she's mobilized the Ancestry.com army. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's great. It's a little overwhelming because sometimes I'm not sure what to do or how to do this. I have had, I mean, at this point, easily a hundred people reach out to me and say, like, I can help, I can help, you know, I'm a I'm a certified genealogist or I'm an experienced researcher, or how can I help? What can I do? I had a woman send me John Kelly's entire family tree that she had done going back, you know generations and generations. And she's just like, I just did it for my own satisfaction, but, you know, use it however you need. And I've actually done some, I've done some matchmaking for people, which is hilarious. Somebody lucked out because the two emails came in like within the same minute one day, one person was like, I probably shouldn't say exactly who they were. Um, they were a, a activist in a certain state looking for information on a very anti-immigrant legislator in their local area. And then somebody else in the same minute wrote, you know, I'm an experienced genealogist. How can I help? And I put the two of them together. And I'm, you know, it's like, I keep thinking of that, uh, you know, that great Reese's, um, old Reese's commercial, you know, you got chocolate in my peanut butter. You got peanut butter in my chocolate. It's great taste. Like, it tastes it's great like, together. hey, I need genealogical research done. And the other person like, hey, I would like to do genealogical research and help your cause. And I was like, do I have a friend for you? So you were doing genealogy as a hobby before. Is that right? I mean, I know you've got a you've got a background as a as a journalist. So research is part of who you are. But you had been doing genealogy just out of your own personal interest or what? Pretty much. I mean, it had evolved to the point where right you know, around the time that this resistance genealogy sort of became a big thing, I had been exploring uh, steps to possibly start doing it professionally because I knew I had gotten to the level where I could do it professionally. And genealogy is a little bit odd because there is a certification process, but many, many working genealogists are not certified. It's not, it's not like being a doctor or something. So, you know, there are tons of people I know who are not professional quote unquote genealogists, but who are expert genealogists and just do it for fun. So I was spending a lot of time doing it on a volunteer basis. I 
have a certain knack for finding things that other people have trouble finding because I have 25 years experience as a journalist and it's very, very second nature to me. It's exactly to me like reporting a story. And if you've never done that before, it might be overwhelming or confusing, but I know exactly what to do and how to follow an information trail. And more importantly, I feel like one of the key skills that I have that people may not realize is I know where to go if I don't know. Sometimes that just people, that Mm -hmm. stops people cold. They get confused. They're like, I don't know what to do with that. And I just, I know who to ask. I know, you know, I, I know how you open up those closed doors. So anyway, so I have been volunteering. I help adoptees um, and that's, you know, I would never take money for that. I help adoptees find their birth parents. I've done that several times over the years. You know, there are a lot of like Facebook groups where people look for help or they post a question, can you help me find this? And I would, you know, spend time every day doing that, just sort of practicing my skills. But I was sort of thinking, you know, I love this so much. I seem to be good at it. I should maybe find a way to turn this actually into part of my career. And so just when you were ready for something a little bit different, this opportunity came along. Yeah, it's it's pretty amazing how it all came together. I keep joking that I feel like one of those people who manifested using a vision board, um, which is not something that I would ever do. But it really sort of was this completely accidental but entirely organic melding of my interests. I mean, I have been saying for a year or two, you know, I feel like there's a project out there that somehow will make use of my, you know, journalism skills and my genealogy passion. And I just don't know what it is. And I kept waiting for it to find me. And it did completely accidentally. But the other part of it that's extraordinary is I thought completely independent of those two strands that I was trying to find a place for in my life. I had this burgeoning political consciousness that I was also wondering what to do with. And I never thought that the three would come together. You know, I was I was a reporter for many, many years. I never could be politically active or speak out politically. But in the past two years, I felt like, you know, all bets were off and I'm no longer, you know, working regularly or working for an organization for which I was restricted in my political activity. And I became increasingly outspoken about what's going on. I mean, I have kids. I felt like it's my duty to speak out. And in one of those really weird moments of serendipity, um, literally the week that resistance genealogy really, really took off, it was the the week that my article in Politico came out and the, the Scavino, my tweet about Dan Scavino Jr. had gone viral and I was, you know, invited on AM Joy and like everything was just going crazy. Uh, Facebook showed me my status from a year ago. And my status from a year ago was me saying, okay, it's time to put my you know money where my mouth is. Though I've never done anything like this before, I think I have a responsibility to maybe find a job somehow in the political sector. So I have journalism skills, you know, I have communications skills. What can I do? And I was just asking friends to sort of help me network. And to be honest, it never felt quite right. You know, I like sent my resume to somebody who thought maybe they had a job for me, like as a press secretary. And it never, it never really clicked for me. I mean, I sort of went through the motions and I networked with a few people and I thought, okay, well, maybe this is what I have to do. And the fact that 
what ended up being the way that I could most effectively use my voice politically was in this arena that I love anyway, the genealogy of arena is just, it's incredible. I just feel like it was so meant to be and it happened so organically, as I said, it's like that you couldn't have planned this in a million years. I just was sort of doing this for fun and putting it on Twitter. And I made up this, you know, I thought sort of silly hashtag because it just seemed ridiculous that genealogy could be a part of the resistance. And it, I, when I made it up, I honestly was sort of half tongue in cheek joking, like, ha ha ha, this is resistance genealogy. But, you know, now it's real. I had somebody tweet me a couple weeks ago, something like they said, 2017, colon, hey, this ancestry.com thing looks pretty cool. I think I'll try it out. 2018, colon, all in caps. I will follow the genealogists <laughs> into battle. Yeah. Didn't see the genealogists as the uh, generals leading us forward, but there you go, 2018. Everything's different. Everything's different anymore. I wonder if your outspokenness and your willingness to put yourself out on the line, if you think that comes from being at this stage of life and having fewer uh, fucks to give, really. Hope that's not offensive, but you know, we've all reached a point where I think we're a little less apologetic than we used to be in our 20s and 30s. Absolutely. I mean, there's no way I would have had the balls to do this 10 years ago and certainly not 20 years ago. Just no way. I just feel like I am confident in who I am. I am confident in my skills. I I know that I deserve to have a place at the table, so to speak, and that, you know, my voice is worth hearing and I'm kind of not afraid of anybody. And I mean, it's been a little overwhelming to get the sort of magnitude of attention that I got, especially because I wasn't planning for it. You know, I keep saying it's not, it's not like I wrote a book and it came out and everybody loved it. It's like I sort of did this little thing that I thought was this little thing and it became this huge, literally international sensation. I imagine you get some pretty, pretty awful pushback. Well, you know, being being an outspoken Jewish woman on Twitter, you know, I would not wish on my worst enemy. You see some horrible, horrible, horrible things said to you. And I just sort of take that in stride. But it's funny, maybe even uh, I feel like this confidence that I'm talking about, maybe even that has evolved because I remember... I think it was probably a year, a year and a half ago. Oh, it was, I could look up when it was. It was when the LA Times wrote that um, very obsequious, flattering portrait of Richard Spencer. I mean, profile, not portrait. And, you know, it had some ridiculous headline on it and it didn't point out that he was like a Nazi. It was sort of, and he, and there was this glamour shot of him leaning against a, a wall and, I looked up who the ombudsman for the LA Times is and I tweeted it. And at that point, my following was very, very, you know, modest. I had a few thousand people following me. And I just felt like, no, I, this is terrible. I need to, I need to say something about this. And I did. And I said, if you want to let the LA Times know what you think of, you know, them profiling him this way, here's the ombudsman's email and phone number. And that was one of the first times that I have ever been responded to with horrible anti-Semitism and scary things. And I have to be honest, I'm not proud of this. But when I saw that, my very first response was, oh, I need to get off Twitter. I just thought like, holy shit, I, you know, I can't, I mean, it made me feel threatened. And I have children. And I just thought like, oh, I'm not, I'm not messing with these people. It's not worth it to speak out if that's going to be the response. And then I kind of 
pulled myself together and I was like, no. And now, you know, I'm like light years ahead of where I was then. And like I said, that was probably only a year, a year and a half ago. But I definitely am very confident. But that's courageous. Don't sell yourself short. A lot of people would have been cowed out of staying on Twitter or, or continuing their work. So, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for for you finding the courage to keep going forward with it because you're shining a light on topics that need to be brought up over and over again, unfortunately. Well, thanks. It's definitely, there's something a tiny bit uncomfortable about it. I'm not a te- terribly confrontational person. And it, I'm also so not used to being in the spotlight this way. You know, for 25 years, I have been a reporter and I have told other people's stories and I was always very confident and comfortable being the one asking the questions and highlighting interesting things that other people were doing. And I'm really not at all used to being the one being asked the questions. Well, you're, you're, you're used to being on the other side of the notepad, right? Oh, definitely. So there's a, there's a tiny bit of discomfort for me about being the one sort of being a little bit of a needler and, you know, saying, hey, Dan Scavino, you want to talk about chain migration? Here's your family's chain migration. Um, it's just not a role that I am entirely comfortable with yet. We're all called to stand up a little taller, I think. Well, there's a, there was a, a tweet or something that went viral and it said something along the lines of, I'm paraphrasing, but it was something like, you know, remember when you used to read about World War II and wonder, you know, what you would have done? Now's the time to figure it out. And that really like stayed with me. You know, you can sort of talk a good game about doing the right thing and, you know, speaking truth to power. Um, but when push really comes to shove, sometimes it's hard and it's not as fun as it sounds. And it involves stretching your boundaries and, you know, doing things that are not typically in your comfort zone. And like I said, that would that was like being a press secretary to me. I didn't I never envisioned myself doing something like that. But at the time, a year ago, I thought, well, maybe this is what I have to do and this is my calling and this is how I'm going to contribute. Well, I, I think about exactly the same thing in the civil rights movement in the 60s. And I think when you're right in it and you don't know how it's going to end and you hope it's going to go your way, it's, it's you know, it's it's hard. And again, it's you need to be courageous, but what choice do you have? Part of what really inspires and motivates this work is I am unfortunately from a family that was very devastated by the Holocaust. It's incredibly close to me. You know, my mother-in-law is was a refugee after the war. And in my own nuclear family, you know, my grandfather's brother and his whole family were killed and tons and tons, countless numbers of distant cousins. So these are not sort of abstract issues to me. They really hit me where I live in a very visceral way. So when we're dealing with things like the Muslim ban, you know, people can sort of think abstractly like, oh, that's terrible that we are enacting, you know, rules that prohibit people of a certain religion from, you know, doing things that other people are doing. But for me, that's like, you know, sends off red lights and warning bill warning bells and alarms and sort of motivates me in a way that it might not motivate other people. All right. So Jennifer, aside from picking up your musical theater career with Mariah again, because obviously that's going to be a goal for you, what story do you really want to write or what tree do you really want to research? What do you what's on your bucket list in terms of projects? Well, I sort of I have my fingers in a lot of trees at any given time, and I'm always sort of trying to 
figure out, you know, which ones are worth telling and which ones are not. I don't know that there's really any one particular person that I would like to do. People are constantly tweeting me and, you know, sending me this person should be done and this person should be done and have you done this person. And one person who's high on my list is I have been working on the tree of Homeland Security Director Kirsten Nielsen, um, who her grandfather was an immigrant, which I find very ironic. So, well, follow if follow Jennifer on Twitter if you want to see how that turns out when she when she's got that story ready to ready to tell. So, one last question for you, which is, what one piece of advice do you have for people younger than you, or do you wish you could go back and tell yourself? I think I would say it's all going to be okay. <laughs> I feel like I spent so many of my 20s, so much of my 20s mired in angst about how everything was going to work out and if everything was going to work out and desperately trying to find the way where I, the place where I was going to break through. And it took me a while, but you get there eventually. I also think a lot, you said one, this this would be two, but maybe you'll let me break the rules. But I think a lot too of the really, really bad relationships I was in in my 20s. And I feel like I would love to go back and take my younger self by the shoulders and just say like, what the hell are you thinking? Like, <laughs> And I think if there's any one sort of, you know, through line, it's that I was so willing to settle for people who treated me in a way that I think I knew on some gut level was not acceptable, but I was so afraid I would never find anything better that I thought it was okay. And looking back, I'm just like cringing. Um, and that's, that's a big one. I really would, um, I would, I would tell my younger self that because when you do find the sort of right thing, and it, I feel like it's like that feeling when you, you know, the tongue of your shoe is messed up, and you don't realize it, and you're walking around like that all day, and then you pull it out, and you're like, Oh, my God, like, (laughs) it's like that. Well, Jennifer, as a a product of chain migration myself, all my people came over uh, on my mom's side via chain migration from England in the 20s. I'm very grateful for the work you're doing. Please keep it up. Let us know how we can support you and help you. And uh, everyone, I'll leave links to Jennifer's Twitter on the episode notes. And uh, yeah, thanks so much for your time today and for sharing your story. Thanks so much for having me. This was great. I love the idea of mining our family trees for interesting stories that show our common and sometimes flawed humanity. So I asked over on the Midlife Mixtape Facebook page for examples of the strangest fruits and nuts in your family trees. I myself had a forefather who was a sea captain who visited Russia in the 1800s and promptly came home and named a daughter Tsarina, which I'm sure caused no end of whatever the 19th century equivalent of eye rolling was. Shannon's great-great-aunt was about to go be a mail-order bride and relocate from Minnesota to northern Maine in the 1890s, but she chickened out and sent her sister, and that's why Shannon's here to tell the tale. Thank God she sent her sister, or Shannon wouldn't even be listening to the Midlife Mixtape podcast. And Keller can trace her lineage back to a Dutch horse thief. So what about you? You got a good genealogy story? You got any horse thieves in your background? Share it with us on the Midlife Mixtape Facebook page or email it to me at dj at midlifemixtape.com or you can find me on Instagram or Twitter at Midlife Mixtape. And if you'd like to tell it to me in person, you have two chances in April. 
On Wednesday, April 4th, I'll be competing in San Francisco's Literary Deathmatch. It's part lit event, part game show, part comedy night. Um, All the event details are at midlifemixtape.com, but I can tell you it's being held at the Battery, which is a private club, so you have to be a member or no one to get in. Look, there's a 50-50 chance they're not even going to let me in. I don't know. We'll see. And we're finally getting close to the next Midlife Mixtape dance party at the Cat Club in San Francisco on Saturday, April 14th. I got my playlist all squared away while I was in Rochester. It was actually a very useful distraction trying to figure out which New Jack Swing song I could slot in between New Order and Stevie Nicks. We've got a little Morrissey in there, of course. I've got um, a Clash song I think is appropriate for the time in which we find ourselves. It's going to be a fun night, uh, and you can find all the details on midlifemixtape.com. Wear your orthotics. We're going to be dancing, you guys. That's it for this week. I'm super excited for the next episode, which is strange because the topic is grief, but I am. My guest is Dr. Kelsey Crow, a grief specialist and the co-author of a book called There Is No Good Card for This, What to Say and Do When Life is Scary, Awful, and Unfair to People You Love. I feel so strongly that grief is something we ignore at our peril, especially in this phase of life when it's a constant intruder. And I just finished reading Kelsey's book yesterday on the plane, and I loved it so hard. If you've ever struggled with what to say or do when someone you care for suffers a loss, you've got to tune into the conversation. We'll have fun being sad together. Maybe we can play some John Denver. All right, you guys have a great week. Take care. For me, I wanna be don't wanna be this, don't wanna be that, don't wanna give up, I wanna give back, I wanna be free by whatever means, whatever you want from me, I wanna be, be, be I wanna be I wanna be free by whatever means.